0: You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 62 is Anthony Phillips. He was an integral member of the 1967 schoolhouse partnership that became Genesis, recording with Peter Gabriel, Tony Banks, and Mike Rutherford. Through their first album and establishing their sound to get to their first proper album, Trespass, leaving the band in 1970. Genesis fans will recognize the music you're hearing right now. It's called F-Sharp Demo, a 1970 recording released on Anthony's The Archive Collection Volume 1. It, of course, became the instrumental foundation for The Musical Box, the opening number from the Nursery Crime album after Anthony's departure. He has since released a ton of solo albums. There are 46 of them listed on his discography page which include collaborations with Mike Rutherford and many other folks. We're going to start today discussing Nocturne, which is a solo classical guitar piece, but we're going to listen to the version from 7th Heaven, a 2012 collaboration with orchestral composer Andrew Skeet. For the second song, we're going to look into his soundtrack work. He's written for many TV projects. This one is from a nature documentary called Midway Island of Life. The song is called Jaws of Death-Touching the Face of God, written and recorded in the year 2000. We will then shift to his full band work, song is "Magdalene" from his 1979 album Sides. We'll conclude by listening to another vocal piece called "Sanctuary" from Private Parts and Pieces Eight, New England, from 1992. For more information, see AnthonyPhillips.co.uk. For more information on this podcast, see NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please donate at Patreon.com/NakedlyExaminedMusic. So I will have played a little bit of the uh, F-sharp demo, the musical box instrumental, just to establish a bass line. I want to get us pretty quickly to Nocturne, your choice in terms of a classical guitar piece. We had three versions that we can play bits from here. I think I'll play in full the most recent one from 7th Heaven by the album you did with Andrew Skeet, 2012. So Andrew adds the strings over the self-contained complete piece that you had already written, do you want to give a few words of introduction before it plays in full?
1: I um, met Andrew Skeet on a previous project, and Andrew was very much taken by some of the guitar pieces on field day, so I let him sort of make a selection of which ones he felt would work really well orchestrated, with just with strings. We weren't going to go over the top and try and do really massive orchestra because it wasn't quite right, but strings felt as though dangerous you can get a bit schmaltzy but we were trying to stay on the side of being tastefully classical so luckily i can orchestrate and i do have an idea about it all so it wasn't like the genesis days of having an orchestrator in who did something we were sort of going what the hell's going on here so we kicked ideas around a bit and i remember we had a thing about things were moving in parallel motion i remember saying andrew i really think they should go in contrary motion but yes then we arrived at a product which i think i hope works and which helps the piece well, it just provides a, a decent alternative to the piece without being too schmaltz or making it too romantic.
0: You'd originally written this, I know it was released, the original version on Private Parts and Pieces 2, 1980, so you'd already, I know, for Private Parts and Pieces 1 and other things you'd done at the time, you'd written plenty of various solo guitar pieces. Where was this in terms of your progression? This seems a little bit maybe simpler, more direct, in terms of, you know, it's not as flashy. In fact, this is not one of those tunes I particularly noticed, (laughs) even though I have all three albums on which this appears. It's kind of very, I mean, both Field Day and uh, the Skeet album are like 30 songs, so it's not too hard to overlook a particular thing. But it's not like one of these Reaper or something, some of these other tunes that just have jumped out at me, but when I sat down with it, listening to the various versions and even trying to pick some of the melody lines out, it's a really just beautiful melody, really felt nice to play. Can you say kind of where you were at the point of writing this? I took a couple of students to see, I can remember exactly, in fact, a
1: couple of students to see Segovia play in his dotage, and I think I can actually date it, October seventy five. And he was brilliant, but he kept having these fractional memory There would be just a pause and on you would go. The sound was still great and the technique was fantastic. It was just memory lapses. And I was so inspired by this. I don't think I was actually copying any of the actual pieces, but you know how if you go and see someone that's brilliant, you immediately want to go home and think, oh, I can do better, and you feel inspired, even if you're not actually copying what they've done. And so I wrote that piece pretty soon after that. It was never designed to be flashy at all. It's actually quite difficult to play. It's very intricate actually and it's also in, in what we I learnt later, it's called Dadgad. I for years used to call it D4th because I had no idea that people did these acronyms on and things and I'm, I was actually using that tuning in 1971 and this was written in 75 and yes, it's a subtle piece, could easily be missed it doesn't jump out at you rhythmically but sonorously it's quite pleasing I think but it's quite intricate I think the fact that the title as well gives it away which is it's a gentle quite nighttimey piece, and therefore not something that is going to leap out at you. The reason I did it again later was that I felt I didn't actually have the technique to do it justice back in those days, because I didn't feel my performance. It was partly the sound of my ring finger, which the nail was terrible, and it was a bit clicky, so I was determined to do a better version,
0: which is why I came back to it. Well, it's even in a totally different key. You know, the original one sounds like it's an E, and then you went to you went down to C sharp for the subsequent version. So it's not like you just put a capo or got a baritone guitar. So it sounds like you, you know, completely rethought it in terms of the fingerings. Actually not.
1: It must have been actually detuned, I think, in the old days. I must have had it in a lower tuning. It's exactly the same figuration. I may have updated the fingering slightly, but effectively I was doing it from a score. It was scored out, you see. But that's interesting. I hadn't brothers. It's in a different key. No, just simply would have been worried. It would have been dang It would have been perhaps C sharp. At. Anyway, you know, it would have been tuned down, I think. Or maybe the other way. Maybe you're
0: saying it's. The original version was quite a bit higher. Was it, you know, a good step and a half?
1: Do you know what I must have done? I must have cheated and very speeded it up because it was so slow. But don't tell anybody. Oh, we're only doing a review on the radio
0: interview. Well, they're both, the overall tempo is quite slow in all the versions. I did notice on the original version more of those delays that you're talking about noticing in Segovia, that this is what I like about classical guitar solo if I do that because it doesn't sound unnatural. Actually it's the same thing with piano, that you can kind of there's so much slight variation in tempo even when you're doing it right in terms of da 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 that if you then pause and then do another thing, like you could be just I'm pausing because I need to think about where my fingers are going to go next. (laughs) But it still sounds a a little more alive, in fact, although these later versions are quite a bit more polished, quite a bit more. It does sound like it's a more advanced musician playing at that point. But it's even the, the original version is pretty immaculate, I feel like. It's very lyrical.
1: What you were describing just now was really phrasing. And of course, being able to use rubato, which means push and pull, literally stolen in Italian, isn't it? And of course, when you're using a click, this is why I hate clicks if I can avoid them, because you simply cannot do that.
0: Well, I also noticed you have a few changes even in timbre. This is going into the second verse. The first verse had a fairly muffled, pure classical tone here. As that new verse emerges, like the brightness has definitely turned up a little bit. Like you're doing just maybe pulling straight up on the strings a little more than you were originally, so that it has that distinctly different thing as the song is going on.
1: Well, in classical guitar terms, what one is doing actually there, I do have a guitar here right by me, but not in the correct tuning. If you play on the fingerboard, it's it's called Sol tastiera, and you get a very mellow sound. Now, if you go up to the near the bridge, sul ponticello. Ah, there you go. That's what I would have been doing. That as opposed to... So that changes the timbre of the sound. And um, Segovia was a master of that, always moving the hand around to gain light and shade. So
0: that would be why that tone changed. So you've got pretty much the A section, and you've got a very romantic B section. I'd written down the Italian part of the song. When we get into the, you know, it's it's kind of enters a different, whereas the A section is a little more Baroque, this seems to be getting distinctly more romantic or Italian or something.
1: Yes, I mean, it does, it becomes more florid harmonically, and therefore more expressive. I always thought of it as being quite Elgarian, but it's interesting that you think think of it as being Italian. That's very interesting.
0: I never thought of that, actually. Uh, That's probably just my own musical ignorance.
1: It's how you hear it. The section before, which is the climb, is the sort of climactic. Yes, that that was slightly influenced by. I don't think I, I sonically copied it, but it was definitely influenced in mood in the way it becomes quite noble and then quite emotional and rolls over as it falls down. That was quite influenced by the famous Cavatina piece that was used in The Deer Hunter. Yeah, that was
0: definitely that little bit of influence there. More in style and natural notes. And then when we do get to the final coda and you've got this last I wrote it down as a cadence, it's not a cadence in terms of five one. It's sort of the the yeah. amen part. It's I had written D major seventh back down to C sharp for the closing thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I imagine with these things, you kind of run out of endings <laughs> is that in terms of once you've recorded enough classical pieces, like, is that a challenge in terms of, okay, how do I wrap this one up?
1: Yeah, it's always tricky, isn't it? I mean, you don't want to do something cliche. Andrew was always getting annoyed with me because so many of these pieces would have long, drawn-out endings playing the section in half-time, and all he could do was really put sort of string harmonics and stuff. But it felt appropriate, given that it was called Nocturne, that it should have a quite peaceful ending, just drifting off, and obviously what you would ideally use in the string department would be high notes, preferably harmonics, so it's got that lovely shimmery sheeny quality as you drift off to sleep.
0: Well, and I'm just amazed that the strings actually work on this in the coda section, you know, the, in the third time you return to the, uh, after the bridge, to the main section, because where you put in all these harmonics on guitar, that that would be a very easy thing to just drown. I sort of had mixed feelings about having strings on this at all, as I was listening through the different versions here, that it's such a pure piece by itself, but the strings are tastefully mixed and tastefully arranged so that they don't step on it too much.
1: There is a school of thought from the absolute purists who got to know, I think it's what you get to know first. Mm-hmm. And it's, if- knew the pieces first and knew them well, there was some resistance to the strings. And I think the uh, people would say, oh, well, you know, they're a little bit too um, sentimental and stuff. But Andrew is very much not a sentimental writer. And I think you stayed on the right side of being sort of mawkish. Uh, but it is what you're used to first. I actually did do an arrangement of this myself. With strings back in '79, I think. So it was always in my mind that that tune would sound very nice sitting on a warm bed of strings. But what one didn't want to do was then to get too florid and it to become wildly sentimental or romantic. And I think he stayed. I mean, because it does get emotionally quite charged, particularly in that the sort of bridge section, as you call it, which climaxes up to the recapitulation. I think he does a good job of that. I hope,
0: hopefully, we stayed on the the right side of it. Well, and definitely in that harmonic section at the end, I mean, the fact that he just has these high strings just peeking through as like it's the veil of clouds.
1: If I could just get a word word in on something which is rather poignant, actually, because the session where we added the strings to field day was done at the Angel Studios in London, and there's only three really big surviving orchestral studios in London. There's Mark Knopfler's one, there's abbey road obviously the famous abbey road there's air and angel and those are the three surviving ones we recorded this string section at the angel with an engineer called steve price steve price such a good engineer that hans zimmer wanted to take him to the states with him as his own personal engineer but steve being a lovely london boy and wanted to stay here with his wife and just work there and he was absolutely fabulous on the session i would say that was probably the most enjoyable session of my life the reason i mentioned it it's because Steve, at the age of 50, has just died of cancer. And the last week I was at his funeral. So it's actually very, very poignant sort of hearing that music and thinking about the fact that I was so looking forward to working with him again. And he was... Like a lot of the really good guys, he was such a nice guy too, and um, he will be
0: very, very sadly missed. So this is for the 7th Heaven sessions, right?
1: Well, it was actually, this was a specific session where we added strings to about seven,
0: eight, nine tracks from Field Day, which later then did, yes. I was actually unclear about that. So this is actually the same exact performance from Field Day that is used on 7th Heaven, just with the overdub.
1: Absolutely right. Andrew was cursed because there was no click. So he had to keep having bars of sort of 5-4 and 19 17, and all sorts of things. But these guys were so good that they just got along with that. And it was a very, very, very happy session with
0: brilliant players. And Steve was brilliant. In terms of working with Andrew on this and other songs, I mean, for instance, for this one, you said you had a earlier string arrangement. Did you send that to Andrew and then he worked off of that? Or you said you have string arranging skills yourselves in in terms of contributing to these. For the most part, was it... I've got these finished pieces, Andrew, do something with it, and I'll tell you which parts, and then you have some interaction to kind of tweak things, or was it more wholly in his realm once it was off your plate?
1: I gave him a totally free hand. I didn't go back to my thing. Some musicians would have done, and I probably, maybe, it might have been an idea to have done it, but I just felt that it would have been probably fairly, well, I'd done the arranging, actually. I, I mean, I'd done Tarko, and I'd done regrets and things so I probably should have had more faith in what I've written but I was a big fan of Andrew's work and I didn't really want to hold him back so I just said you know do your own thing
0: yeah, well, it certainly makes it a very uniform
1: style. I always put my aura in about the harmony here and there, and if something was a little bit too angular, a little bit too... And luckily, that was works great because I can talk the lingo and not just some bloke saying, oh, I don't really like that sound of that. you know. So I could actually give articulation to what it was that troubled me in the harmony. But we had very little problems. And um, no, it was a great session. And dear
0: Steve, will be sadly missed. And the feedback would still happen in the session if you wanted to switch something, not in the mixing, because you can, you know, can we just chop off that one string riff? Can we pump that, you know, change the volume of that or, or even change the pitch with any of that digital nonsense or?
1: I think there was very little changing of actual parts there was quite a lot of changing of kind of phrasing and bowing and that kind of thing. I don't seem to remember there being much change at all. And obviously because of the note, everything is down done in Sibelius, you play in what you, so you don't get this sort of endless, oh, I've got an A sharp in bar 57 gov, is that right? There were no wrong notes, all those days are gone. So yeah, I know it was, uh, we pretty much did it as it was, but I mean, I had to kick ass a bit here and there, as you guys would say. Well, they weren't quite pulling it together or getting the right phrasing on it, but no, it was a, really,
0: really enjoyable session. All right, well, let's move to Jaws of Death slash Touching the Face of God from Wildlife. We wanted to switch gears to one of your synth pieces, a This is from the documentary Midway, Island of Life. It's from the British Survival Series, recorded in 2000. Uh, I know the album as a whole is credited to you and Joji Hirota. Did he work with you on this song, or was that just a matter of you both contributed to that soundtrack?
1: We did a number of the Anglia soundtracks together, but actually, funnily enough, um, that one was a one-off that I did for the BBC Natural World series about Midway, which is an island, well, Midway, as you probably know, in between the two oceans. It was a site of a famous naval battle so lots and lots and lots of ships at the bottom of the sea not too deep because Michael Pitts who I work with it was his baby we had some glorious shots of these wrecks with coral and beautiful fish swimming swimming in and out a lot of it featured albatrosses um, and the albatross It's 5,000 miles from the San Francisco coast. They fly 5,000 miles to the coast in search of whatever it is they need. You know, I don't know what kind of food it is, but whatever's in the sea is inadequate for an albatross. So they undertake these huge voyages. When they're learning to fly, you see these um, young things doing their best. And, of course, one or two of them don't make it. And, of course, when they hit the water, sadly, the sharks are waiting for them. And so the front of this piece was actually written to the shark, this great climactic sound which goes, that I'm afraid is the jaws of a shark. Huge, great white uh, getting its thing around a floundering albatross.
0: All right. So just to warn people that that's the first half and then it becomes a prettier thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, and actually then it became the outro to the music. But we seem to be touching on sensitive subjects, and I can't believe we've hit another one here, which was, I haven't really sort of thought of this, is because the chap that Joji and I did all the music for together, Nick Gordon, he very sadly died of a heart attack in South America during his last shoot in 2004. And funnily enough, Nick, he knew nothing about this program, but when he was at a festival of wildlife programs being shown, he was there for one of ours, but this other program came on, and he had no idea that I'd done the music to it, and he liked it very much. When we came to look for titles for the uh, wildlife album with selected cuts from all these things, there was something very ethereal about that last section. And in fact, you do see an albatross flying high in the sky. You know, it's a sense of freedom, all the rest of it. And there was something so pointed about Nick having died. That so, uh, yeah, touching the face of God was sort of um, symbolic, really. So, we are touching lots of rather sensitive and sad subjects, but it's beautiful anyway, it's beautiful. <laughs>
0: When I picture computer music, it's sitting and you know using your MIDI and doing it sort of note by note, or maybe playing a whole piano part through. Especially in this first half, you've got a lot of things that it's not even clear what the pitch is. You know, it's very swirly. So tell something about the tools you're using, the techniques you're using to put this stuff together for this first half of it, the shark part.
1: Well, obviously, if you've got something like that, you've got to use sounds that are fairly discordant because it's not going to be pretty. What's happening isn't pretty. So I can't remember what the climactic sound was. It's too long ago. This is 1999. It's obviously a roll. I have a feeling it may have been a timpani roll. But with a massive, obviously, fort sando at the end of it. Then the sound after that, in the sort of detritus of the sound, it's like the wave drifting off. And then I think it's string samples, which are all slightly discordant. And then it sort of comes back again. It's like the albatross is trying to fight for its life. And then it, and then that all that nastiness all subsides into the much more peaceful resolution. But yes, it was mainly percussion and eternal strings at the
0: start. Yeah, it seems like that you've got underlying this first part a single note, a D. That's kind of I was interpreting as the surface of the water or something, and then a few times the sharky sounds recede and you hear this single note still there, and then they come back and they're crescendos and like waves washing over you know these as the shark is brushing past you or something. Well, it was always a challenge. I mean, thank God, having all these lovely synth sounds, which are
1: slightly odd. I mean, you can do an enormous amount with orchestral sounds, obviously endless, but it's a whole new palette, isn't it, with some of the samples. And I cannot recall exactly which samples I used, but I was looking for some odd ones and some discordant ones, and
0: they really came to my rescue there. Okay, so probably for the most part, there's often with some of these sounds... Several distinct parts to the sound, but probably those are all just combined in the same samples. That if you've got something that is, is you know, it might have overtones on it that you're not manually creating. It's just that's part of the sample that you picked.
1: Yeah, I don't recall having to do a great deal of manipulation. I might have had to apply. I think it's just mainly a massive crescendo. To be honest, I don't think anything more than that. I'm sure the role was actually on the timpani, some roll, and having to add that. Yes, trying to remember every little sample. The other unfortunate thing, of course, is that given how fast things move, you have to hang on to all your old computers, because otherwise you can't use music from yesterday on your new gear. So the idea of even being able to locate something in, in its constituent parts that you did five years ago, unless you've transferred it all to a 24-track, is almost impossible. We seem to be living in an increasing world of today and tomorrow, and uh, I think just the fact that there is this phrase, back compatibility, raises some very serious questions about where the music business is
0: going. So finally, at about a minute and 25 seconds in, things open up and we get the pretty synth pads. And a very recognizably ant chord progression. In fact, the first two chords, it could almost be Nocturne.
1: It's the classic closing titles, which obviously ate the opening titles, but are more ethereal, more resolved, obviously. Because if you have at the start, the opening titles have to have more openness. It's like an introduction. Whereas at the end, you want particularly the way they tended in the wildlife programs to have a sort of a roundup. There was always this sort of rounding up feeling and you'd have the underscore running up to when the titles would start. There'd be a sort of closing upbeat kind of spiel. And so then you go into the sort of resolution where you're not asking any questions anymore. And it's more of a chance to sort of fly free, really. But it was... That is, you know, what actually was happening in the picture is that you do see, as I was saying, the albatross wheeling in and out of the uh, beautiful
0: sky. You establish that with the nice keyboard fills, then you've got a flute melody that comes over that, or, you know, synth flute, pretty decent sounding synth flute, a lot of nice vibrato, it doesn't sound, it's not a 1981 (laughs) fakey synth flute, and then a nice oboe, and then another flute in a higher register with a kind of a choir underneath it. Can you say just something about how, I know you've done so many of these soundtrack soundscapes, what your process is, how intuitive is this, how much are you is it very similar in terms of coming up with the melodies as what you would do when you're doing a guitar or piano piece or how do these distinct skill sets hook together?
1: I think it's quite different when you're doing it to film and TV because you're not in free composition mode, you're in subjective composition mode therefore you're looking at it and trying to get the emotion direction, trying to get the emotion so you're both looking for the right harmonies, the right harmonic approach, but obviously the tune has got to be right. And it can sort of come in either order, really. Obviously, it's being that length of time. I can't quite remember. I have a feeling that it wasn't one of those things where I found myself humming the tune without any harmony. I think that I probably had a pad on one keyboard and the flute sound on the other. and improvised around that, and suddenly the chord sequence suggested the melody, or maybe it almost as if they both came at the same time. It does sound like
0: that kind of piece. I'm also interested in the, the way you use percussion in the transitions here, because you have these swishy little percussion things that just come and they go. They don't come in and now we have a steady beat through the rest of the song or something like that. It's just, you barely even hear that there's something going on, but you know, you throw a little more into the sonic palette. That's what I really like about this. Maybe an advantage of this over acoustic guitar tracks, unless you have nine acoustic guitars, (laughs) there's nothing subtle. Like everything is, I'm definitely playing now, but these sounds, you can pick ones that have no attack. You can mix them in such a way that they just barely register.
1: It's true. I mean, there are so many wonderful sounds. We are incredibly lucky. Possibly it makes us too lazy in terms of creating our own sonic palettes from the start but this endless amount of wonderful samples arrive on your doorstep sometimes they're too rich at least you just put your finger on the keyboard there's too much happening but there are some glorious glorious sounds which are so inspiring and of course make composition so much easier being somebody that really feeds generally off sound I mean, i occasionally get I'm melody led an idea will come to me all rhythmically but so often i work on sound particularly work on something visual, it's so important that it's emotive and evocative. I think we've been incredibly lucky in terms of writing music for film and TV in terms of being able to have this extraordinary, if anything there's too much choice. There's so many wonderful sounds to try, When you need to work fast, it's just like, where do I begin? Because there's so many good ones around. This will work, that'll work, that'll work, that'll work. Whereas if you think of something like Pet Sounds or Sgt. Pepper, they had to create every single sound and
0: sound combination from scratch. And then you've got this key change. Let me just play the little section here. Which that's curious to me that we're in the closing credits. There's nothing going on necessarily that you're having to react to. But it's just, if I keep on the original progression, it's just going to get boring. I need it to ramp up a level. I need to get it prettier for some reason. That you're not reacting to what's happening on the screen anymore. Unless the name of the best boy or whatever coming down the screen is a, or the associate producers, we need some kick for that.
1: Yeah, I don't think Key Grip really needs that by himself, does he? But the thing is that... If you just keep going around the same sequence, it's going to get dull, and you want to become, without, again, becoming melodramatic, and that little bit grander, just crank up the gear and obviously go, you could go down, a key that can work at times if it becomes more rich and more emboldened. But if you've got a an ethereal piece like this, it sort of makes sense that you would go slightly higher, I think, and raise the key, particularly because you've got this bird that's sailing higher and higher into the sky. So it sort of makes sense to give it a lift and go up. And as you say, the nice washed symbols go across the key change. And they do work very well, those little bits of percussion.
0: Now, I also found it interesting here how you, for the end of the song, you just stop the lead instrument, so it's going... It's as if the the backing choir has been going, you have the soloist stand out in front, and the soloist steps back, and then you just kind of fade it out by having the synth pad deliver that last message, as opposed to some grand, maybe this fits well with how credits are done. The last thing you usually see on a TV credit is what the production company or something, you know, it's not anything that you have to end with a big and then, you know, have an actual finale. <laughs> I think that's
1: right. I think that's right. I've never really analyzed this before as well, but you are right because I don't think generally speaking, unless you've got a particularly nasty subject or piece that you would drive to a, into a, like a brick wall ending, generally speaking, as the credits go, you just want to settle it at the end and just drift off and just have a moment of, it just fades into stillness. I think that's the general thing you will find if you go to most television programs at the end credits. If it's been a very exci- something very exciting, because it might end with a big swash and a bang, but a lot of them will just have that moment of calm,
0: that tail. Now, just to give a little contrast, we're not going to play anything here from your more recent private parts and pieces eleven, but that's another purely synth thing. But it's not driven by you know, having to match to a particular visual. Can you say a little about, you know, you're still using those same tools, and in fact that, you've got a lot of very, very short pieces, like we're just, we're introducing a sound, we're playing with it, and then it goes away, can you say something just a little bit more about how you would use this method of using samples and putting instrumental synth pieces together? But now we're free from the confines of having to match something on the screen. It seems the screen is actually a help. It tells you what you have to do next. But now you're, you're free form again.
1: I think that's true. I think um, that a lot of the pieces on Prime Parts of Pieces 11 is that they were improvisations, a lot of them. The basic parts were improvisations. I was looking for things that had a strong mood, either mystery or drama or hopefully beautiful. And there was only a question of editing them and adding things. And so there was this uh, strange kind of backwardsy thing, which sounded backwards. It wasn't backwards. It was a bizarre, bizarre sound on the... Oh, which Roland synth was it? I can't remember now. It was an analog synth, definitely. And that was... Gave rise to the city of dreams, this rather sort of odd sound which in, sort of implied the chaos and the confusion and the multi-legged quality of the city, particularly at night, particularly at night with so much going on and mystery. Mm-hmm. I think the piece you're referring to I called Mystery Train,
0: I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely one of them that comes back in a couple different forms in little bits. So
1: in a sense, I was using what, what in classical music, they call a kind of motto theme, which is you get a mood or you get a theme or in this case, a kind of a palette. And then throughout the album, this comes back. So it's like a recurring thing. So it's, although there's a lot of fragmentary pieces, which are seemingly unconnected, this helps to keep linking the story. You keep coming back to the same thing. You're back city of dreams. You're back the same. You're going back
0: again into this same strange world again. Well, and then you have a finale that's very much like the end of the song we just heard, that in terms of, okay, now we're having the nice, the pretty part. You've got sort of a two-stage, really theatrical sort of finale, while still calm, beautiful.
1: The anthem for Doom Youth was actually taken from a poem by Wilfred Owen, about the first world war. I seem to be a bundle of fun with all the subjects I'm mentioning tonight, but it is true because I didn't write it with that title, but that piece was rather sad and rather stark. And I couldn't think what to call it. And I just remembered how much I loved Wilfred Owens, Wilfred Owens poems which I did at school when I was 17. I thought, well, that yeah, it's kind of sad. So let's use his poem's title. It's a beautiful poem. I don't know if you're aware of Wilfred Owen's First World War Poetry, but it's knockouts. It really is stunning. I mean, it's very disturbing, a lot of it, but it's beautiful in some way.
0: Yes, and and you get that out there, and then you have the homecoming to actually still brighten things up and give that, it's a similar calm, well, the whole album is very calming.
1: I have always have a theory apart from 1984 which ended on a nasty note I've always tried to take, I suppose unconsciously if there's a journey going on let's end it nicely, let's leave people on a happy resolved note without being too cliched and the Geese of the Ghost ends with Sleepfall which is a very um, almost lullabyish quality Slow Dance ends with a piece which is almost has a sort of Chinese kind of resolution and calm to it. I prefer doing that rather than leaving people with a bad musical taste in their mouth. 1984, there would have been a cheesy to have done that with 1984 because the whole thing's quite edgy and quite disturbing. And look at the title, look at the book, look at what's going on in the world today. So, um, yeah, that felt right. But it's irresistible for me to try and end in a nice and pretty
0: way. Although now you've added bonus tracks to everything. So, 1984. Nobody will stop with that ending. It'll just keep going and ruin the original intended effect. Let's move to our third song, Magdalene, from Sides, 1979. So this is sort of one of the last attempts at a a full band sound. I'd say the last attempt at something that is in the Genesis vein It's a over-seven-minute song here with vocals, not you singing, although you sing on plenty of your own songs. Why don't you give us a little intro? I mean, this whole second side of this album is beefy, long songs, nice, thick arrangements. We start off like it could be one of your solo acoustic guitar pieces, but then it quickly becomes something that's fairly unique outside of this album in your catalog.
1: A bit of background here, without being too long-winded, Wise After the Event was the first album without Mike Rutherford, and suddenly things were all changing in the music scene, and I um, was lucky to have the production skills of Rupert Hine, who was a fabulous guy, and also worked with John Perry. Great bassist, great, lovely man, and particularly Michael Giles, who was obviously a phenomenal hero of mine from the King Crimson days. So we did Wise After the Event. We managed to get through with some longer songs, but... The tide was a changing, it was. And, um, we were suddenly told, you know, you've got to write, it's got to be short pop songs, you know, no, no no more of this long, unwieldy stuff. And I got so fed up with people telling me at the time that, oh, this music sounds all right, but hasn't got enough balls in it. And it was also juvenile. It was fine if you were 15, but I wasn't. In fact, I was only 25, 26. So the pressure was on to do shorter songs. Now the compromise reached was to have one side of sort of pop songs, if you like, and one, the other side in the longer format. And I was very lucky to be able to do that. We were actually, the reason the cover has got the football table is we were going to call it balls. It was originally called balls, in fact, but then the record company said, you can't put an album called balls out. So Peter Cross had to change it to sides, which is the same amount of letters. So you could still fit it in the same place. But that's why there is that football table. So yes, I was very lucky still to be able to do some longer songs. So. The second side of Sides had the four songs, and there was a piano one, there was a big electric one, a sort of keyboard-based one, more full, not a song, but Magdalene was the 12-string one. It was the sort of pretty 12-string one, which gets quite large on the choruses and then has quite a long... I was going to say riotous instrumental section. Not quite, but it does run away with itself a bit. Quite a lyrical style in the verses, I seem to recall. I did sing part. Of, it was actually what happened was I was working with Dale Newman and Dan Owen. Dale's got a gorgeous voice and Dan sings like an angel. His vocals on I Want Your Love. were Fantastic. We took a verse each, actually, and then all each sang together on the choruses. It was loosely based on a friend of mine called... Called Magdalene, who was a painter, hence some of the lyrics. But um, I can't really go any further than that. I mean, Michael's, some of Michael's fills were so brilliant, so difficult that in the gaps, I would have to tap my foot one, two, three, four, because otherwise I couldn't come back in in time. His fills went right across the beat, you know, but but and you're trying to get down, two, three, come back in, in time. I found it almost impossible, but um, he was quite brilliant. He had a harpsichord, and trying harpsichord with 12 string was a lovely combination. Some of the sounds sound a little bit dated to me now, and perhaps we could have worked on it a little bit more in the middle section, but I think overall it comes across quite well. Some people like it.
2: She drinks the morning air She takes the utmost care She's very good mm-hmm. She sets the flowers around Strolling by to the sea Rolling by And in the night You will find her at your easel Drawing ducks and drakes. The stars display Who seals The dwindling day She's very good She's very good To me Oxford bells ringing Phantom choir singing Let's go. Cool.
0: I find it interesting the way that things change up for in the third verse. So it's some sort of synth flute. What's exactly going on there?
1: I think that sounds like harpsichord actually playing with 12 string. I think there is a synth part as well playing staccato, but the mellow sound is the plucked harpsichord sound the Pitzy sound is the mellow. Is the it's not strings. It's plucked harpsichord playing with twelve string, which is harpsichord is a gorgeous sound. I I own a harpsichord now, and it's a lovely instrument.
0: When you've got a big structure like this, I mean, I know you know if you were doing it with Genesis, you would just practice it a lot and then lay something down with more of a studio project like this. I mean, were you still you and the two rhythm players? could get through the whole song and that's what we're hearing, or is it more layered in section by section than that in terms of putting something like this together?
1: I would do this rhythm tracks with Mike and John, and then Rupert and I would then do all the overdub sections. And there were specific studios. We did them at Essex Studios. In fact, the backing tracks, the rhythm tracks. And then we went to the farmyard mobile near Amersham and did the um, overdubs in a big barn with lots and lots of different instruments. And that was always great fun experimenting and experimenting. So would this,
0: you know, working it up with John and Michael, would that be pretty much the same process as? teaching a regular band as opposed to I have two studio guys coming in and doing some one-off projects. At least Michael was coming up with some of these drum riffs as you're going. How much, especially at this point, you're used to having fairly full control, right? How much in the other player's business would you be getting at this point in terms of the arrangements?
1: I don't think I ever demoed these with um, any kind of drum box or any kind of, I probably didn't even use bass. So I had very few preconceptions and I didn't need to have anyway because the guys were so good. Everything I thought about, they would definitely come up with something better. So I would just arrive with the basic guitar part and often a rough tune, maybe not even totally finished tune and very guide lyrics. And the boys would just hit their straps. I don't think I changed the music dramatically because of their input, but sometimes it did change a bit, certainly. But they were, I certainly didn't dictate to them. I wasn't coming in with notes or sort of, you know, rhythm charts and stuff. I think I probably maybe prepared a rough chord chart, but John was very, very good at doing his own as well. So, um, yeah, it was a real joy working with those guys because obviously suddenly it was taking it into a completely different realm. One of the things I did find was because I'd been used to playing by myself, and not often using a sort of pre-click time, really, was I found that I tended to speed up quite a lot. And uh, Michael famously, on the first album, sent me home at the weekend to practice with a metronome to stop me speeding up so much.
0: Yes, a necessary step. (laughs) Indeed. So some of the uh, vocal rhythms, the way that they fit over the sometimes very busy backing here are just strange. I'm kind of <laughs> wondering it, that if the drummer and bassist were coming up with their own parts when you were just doing this instrumentally, but you'd already written the lyrics and the melody to this beforehand, before you'd be introducing it at this stage, right?
1: Well, I'd certainly written the basic part of the melody. Now you're making me wonder whether, in fact, actually possibly, once they put their parts down, whether I then did change it a bit. I think I might well have done that. But I think now, the basic part was definitely there.
0: Yeah, this, she is one of the best... It's a very strange melody is what I'm saying. It's a, (laughs) most of your, your other vocal pieces, you know, they're ballads, they're something. So that's quite a different style that's coming in, maybe only for this song or a, a couple others where you're a little rapid fire in, in the lyrics a little bit. And of course, it's only in a couple parts of the song. It's to get these transitions between the pretty verse and the much grander pretty chorus
1: you're quite right there is a sort of it's well put that this is sort of staccato thing in between the drum phrases yeah i think that was quite nice balance that to have you've got long lyrical lines and then suddenly you've got these shorter staccato things i'm actually not sure if i did come up with those at the time i think they maybe possibly did come later as a result of michael's drumming
0: yeah i would find that very difficult to uh a lot that you have to dodge there in terms of the, what the drums are doing and uh
1: i think that's quite right yeah
0: and can you say a little bit about just how you write lyrics? We have a very pastoral poem here. Is there a plot, really, or is this more a series of images?
1: Gosh, somewhere between the two, really. I had a friend called was a painter, and she did spend some time in Edinburgh. All this is true, but there's no real plot. There's no specific story that I'm telling. It is a succession of images, really. And there was something rather angelic about her. We weren't involved, but there was she was artistic and rather sort of mysterious, and therefore it was ripe really for images. She would paint all night, often as well, as in, you know, painting, induction, directs and drinks, all that kind of stuff. So there is quite a sort of again, quite a mysterious nighttime feeling to some of the music when it goes into that little quiet section just before the chorus, when you get the, you can be sure of it. And in the night, you can see all that, all that sort of mystery, the mystery about her played into the lyrics and I think I can't actually remember now whether how quickly the lyric came or whether it came pretty much with the song. I have a feeling it it was pretty close. I mean, sometimes obviously remember people come up with the lyric line straight away as soon as they write the song. There are degrees aren't there? Then other times the people have got no lyrics at all. they just got rough lyrics and then they spend weeks trying to work a proper lyric in where the gobbledygook sounds fine and actually the real lyric doesn't ever seem to sound quite fine. But I have a feeling that these lyrics came pretty quickly with the music. You
0: know, I really associate a lot of your music, the part that's most affected me over the years is just being just really emotionally naked. <laughs> and so especially the vocal songs, which are often just something a one or two songs, maybe at the end of an album. And they're often they are lullabies. There's something, you know, a thoroughly pure love song This one is a little more mysterious, as you say. It's a little less clear what your relationship to this person is. She's holding your life in her hands. The world is waiting at her behalf. Like, it's some very dramatic stuff here. But at the same time, it's a, a hymn in praise as opposed to, I want your love or something.
1: It's quite difficult sort of being grilled about, I'm not saying you are grilling at all, but about being in depth about the actual, the total line and nuance of, of, of a lyric, particularly one so long ago. I mean, there do appear to be, not necessarily contradiction, but as you say, it goes from being quite gentle have being quite dramatic, and I'm not sure I can ever really explain it to you 100%. Often one just comes up with lines that sound good, that have some sort of image to you, but doesn't necessarily all fit like a glass around a particular story, maybe because as the piece climaxes on those more epic lines, it felt like using something which was a bit more dramatic, like holding your life in her hands. But I love the way when it when it turns into In Your Hands, Dan's voice on that is vibrato. That's really nice, that.
0: It's been characterized as, in a lot of older interviews, as you know, why do the old Genesis songs have used mythological themes or something? It's like, well, because young men finding it hard to write about personal romance or something. And by this point, like in the Genesis albums, it's quite a lot of breaking away from that, not to the extent, obviously, to it got in the eighties. And so it was just interesting to see sort of the parallel. You know, it seems like you got over that thing very quickly, like with any of your solo stuff, even though we have things referring to English history and the other, uh, you know, more eccentric, non-personal story. I don't know if I want to say that the lyrics reflect that or if it's just reflected more in, the overall tone based on what I'm seeing on the album covers and what I'm sort of projecting into it.
1: Well I think there are a mixture of if you go through those two particular albums you have got the more sort of eccentric, whimsical ones like we're all as we lie, which is about, you know, sort of so loosely based on Gulf with a load of historical characters all arriving and doing very bizarre things. And, you know, the lyrics to Wise After the Event, which are again a lot of very strange imagery, a sort of sub John Lennon, really. I'm stressing the sub there. But then obviously there are songs which are absolutely, you know, very deeply from the emotional side of things like regrets. Interestingly, I Want Your Love was not actually written about anybody in particular, which people often think it probably was. So sometimes, I, I think McCartney was written. I mean, a lot of McCartneys love songs don't think necessarily about anybody in particular. I mean, this is well-known. People could often write a great love song. But yet somehow there's something about the really heart-rending ones that you always sort of think that, gosh, that person must have experienced that. Surely that can't have just, you know, come from nowhere.
0: Let me ask you that in light of what I was thinking as the thing to play as the outro here. Sanctuary from uh, New England, 1992, Private Parts and Pieces 7. This I picked just as an example of the kind of vocal song that you write that really just socks me in the gut. How I Want Your Loving Girl sounds exactly like the kind of thing that, you know, you could be attributing to Paul McCartney. Is this, this is sort of writing lyrics in a love song tradition as opposed to this is a personal poem that I'm writing for somebody.
1: Well, interestingly, that one was about somebody in particular and I've never told anybody and the person in particular doesn't know. <laughs> all the better. All the better. I thought you were like that. <laughs> you see, you just can't tell, can you?
0: It's interesting to me that, you know, your lyrics are good. They're personal. They're well thought out. There's a couple of distinct styles in here. There's definitely ideas that go into the songs, but yet that's not something you do a lot these days. It's something that seems to have, are you still writing poetry or something on a occasional basis?
1: You know, it's funny, isn't it? It's something I regret, actually, over the years That becoming more and more of an instrumental writer, moving away from... I mean, I do write songs. I mean, I'm always writing bits, you know, whether it's a sort of a 12-string that might be a piece or it might be a verse to a song. But lyrically, it takes something to sort of really... Yeah, I I think that the era... I think if I was forced, if record company said write an album of songs tomorrow one I was forced to, then I, I would do it and I would come up with lyrics. So I think that's partly what happened with Wise Arthur Better and Sides. And it was Needs Must. I wrote the music on Sides in seven weeks, and we had two other sides. We had a side of keyboard music and a long guitar piece. So really got on with it when Needs Must. But I haven't had to do it, and therefore I tend to only write lyrics, I think, when I get particularly moved by something. like I mean, on Private Parts and Pieces… Eight, I think it was, the song Unheard Cry was about seeing a a child in a cot who was sort of, you know, hidden away in a room from everybody else who was born with AIDS and what that life meant. You know, that child was born with a, you know, with, with a death sentence and how sad, and absolutely heart-wrenching, the look on the child's face. And um She'll Be Waiting on Private Parts of Pieces 9 was about a very good friend of mine at one of the record companies whose wife went in for a routine operation and died and it was absolutely tragic and so that again these are very profound sort of emotional experiences effectively so song. but outside that no i don't find myself now sadly being moved to you know the old line the old line definitely but it would take a record company to say right we want an album of songs for you but are you in three months time and then i'm sure i could do it i don't see how good they are but it was always more difficult outside those emotional experiences It was always more difficult. It was the most difficult part of the operation.
0: Well, it's always a a fans pastime to, uh, you know, when you're into music that is several decades old to kind of, well, what would this be like with better production values or with a mature, a more mature songwriting outlook? So, you know, it's nice for that reason that we have Steve Hackett versions of genesis stuff put out in the last couple years because like oh well this is what it would sound like (laughs) with those exact arrangements (laughs) now we can hear the knife you know with not recorded in 1970 sounding really with terrible drum mics or whatever (laughs) and so it's kind of the same thing where where you know where i hear the odd vocal song from you more recently then it's like okay i'm getting to hear you know a nice more modern synthesis of it's not this young kid in 1976 or whatever I realize that kind of thing can always be disappointing as much as we might want a Mike Rutherford and Ant album to come out now or so, you know, it's not going to have the hundreds of hours that you guys, you know, hung out (laughs) doing these very natural things. you know, so, so these attempts to update are never as natural and organic as one might want.
1: Yes. I mean, I must say as a writer, though, I would, I mean, I would very happily do another album with Mike Rutherford. I'd like a shot. I mean, uh, I've worked with many people and got on with them well, but there was something very simpatico about writing with Mike. But it, after Genesis, it was never really possible. And the Geese, the Ghost was a sort of brief coming back together again, but that didn't really last, obviously. And, um, no, we definitely had a, there was a sort of uh, telepathy. Uh, so there was something quite special there, which was, will always be, for me, a rather a great loss, a, a sad one, really. I don't think we're in the same place musically now. I mean, I respect what he does, but I don't think that Mike would want to go back and do sort of more 12-stringy stuff, really. I think he, you know, he's in a sort of different place now, really, but um, maybe we'll see. Maybe there's a magic wand out there somewhere. All right.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been
1: very illuminating. Absolute pleasure, Mark. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Wow, that one was a real treat for me. Thanks so much to Anthony Phillips. Very much like his replacement in Genesis, Steve Hackett. Ant has some wonderful classical guitar albums. And Ant, of course, has also synth albums. Really, his whole long-running Private Parts and Pieces series is, for the most part, very relaxing. Beyond being good music for all the reasons that I normally like music, it could just serve a different function. for meditating, or falling asleep, or putting your kids to sleep. And that last album, New England, is a great example of that where there's just a vocal song or two that rises up out of it, but it's mostly instrumental. That 2005 double album, Field Day, which the version of Nocturne without the strings came off of, is also really great for this, as is the seventh Heaven album itself. Though despite what Ant said, the strings do get really crazily sentimental in a few places. So it's a little more rousing than his purely instrumental guitar work or ambient synth work. He also mentioned albums like 1984, which was his first synth symphonic work, Released in 1981, that is a fun little album with certainly very dated synth sounds, but definitely not ambient. He did let me know that right now he's working on a brand new acoustic instruments album. So that will be cool. Keep an eye on anthonyphillips.co.uk. And remember to go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com and subscribe to this podcast. Leave your comments. Email me at mark at If you want to put in requests for guests or anything like that, I'd appreciate if you left a nice rating and review in the iTunes store if you use that, and that you go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic and sign up to be a recurring donor. Just a small amount would be nice to show that you like what's going on here. My next release will be a cool year-end special where I talk to a few past guests, get up to date on the things they've released since I talked to them, and reflect back on two years of doing this podcast and the events of 2017 in particular. Until next time, keep on musicin'. This is Mark Lintonmeyer, signing off.